Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 43 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we've got a lot of really big issues to talk about today. We're going to be talking about, of course, the latest insanity from the school boards. It just never stops. It never stops these school boards. Usually, the northern Virginia counties are the ones that give us all we need, Loudoun, Fairfax, Arlington. But we're going to have some really infuriating footage for you guys from Minnesota, another state that obviously is the center of a lot of madness from the left right now. We're going to be talking about one of the dominant issues of our time that surprisingly not too many people are talking about or those who are talking about it are getting it wrong and that is big tech but before we do that we gotta as soon as i saw this video i knew we had to riff on this this is just too good to be true the united nations i think more so than anything else it's pretty clear jacob you would agree that the un cares more about global warming than anything else that is their that's their jihad that's their dominant issue that overrides everything else forget Poverty, forget inequality, forget gun rights, forget terrorism, what have you. It's all about global warming. This is the thing that's going to wipe us all out. They've been predicting for the last 20-something years that global warming was going to wipe us all out, and yet it never does. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fair to say. When I saw this was actually put out by the United Nations on YouTube, I had to do several double takes, and especially when you know the voice behind this. So th again, this is an audio-only podcast. We will post a link in the description below, but so that you can visualize what you're about to hear. It's going to be a video, uh, this is a one-minute-long video, of a velociraptor, a CGI velociraptor, yes, the fearsome dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, made famous by Jurassic Park, speaking to the United Nations. Speaking. And he is voiced by actor and alleged comedian Jack Black. Goes up to the mic. Listen up, people. You're headed for a climate disaster. And yet every year, governments spend hundreds of billions of public funds on fossil fuel subsidies. Imagine if we had spent hundreds of billions per year subsidizing giant meteors. I I'm not sure if it's possible to subsidize giant meteors, but, you know, I, I, I digress. <laughs> That's what you're doing right now. Around the world, people are living in poverty. Don't you think helping them would make more sense than, I don't know, paying for the demise of your entire species? And they're showing footage on the big screens of little, like little kids in Africa. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. What does poverty and inequality have to do with global warming? Like this, this is like them trying to say, hey, if you want to solve gun violence, you got to legalize abortion. Like, <laughs> like that's two, two totally non-related issues here. It's just, they're just throwing everything in there that they can in their agenda. You've got a huge opportunity right now. As you rebuild your economies and bounce back from this pandemic. So here's my wild idea. Don't choose extinction. You need fossil fuels to provide your heating. You know, all like those, those losers who stormed the Department of Interior a while back. They will be turning around and begging for fossil fuels to bring back their precious heating in the winter season as it gets colder, obviously, because that is how you stay warm. And I also got to mention that like the uh, bouncing back from the pandemic. Bouncing back from the pandemic or bouncing back from these stupid lockdowns that were totally unrelated to the pandemic? You know, those are two different things. It's not like the pandemic itself is what crippled the economy. But of course, the, in their view, it is. Save your species before it's too late. It's time for you humans to stop making excuses and start making changes. Thank you. And everybody clapped, including the four-year-olds. It's now or never. Don't choose extinction.com. Okay, I mean, first off, again, this is just, you're not able to see this visual, but the CGI is terrible. 
It looks so bad. The CGI Velociraptors from the original Jurassic Park in 1993 looks better than this. You think with all the globalist money that the UN has, they could afford better CGI effects? And besides, if I wanted to see crappy CGI starring Jack Black, I would watch the King Kong remake that he was in in 2005. Because that was terrible. That was your typical mid-2000s, three-hour-long CGI fest where, y you know, they literally filmed entire scenes just to showcase the CGI in that movie. Well, they had this new technology, and they had to, it was like, okay, we got to impress people with this, this new technology without even rightly incorporating it into the story. Exactly. And again, from that movie, I actually like Jack Black. That was, Jack Black was the best thing about that movie. The, the rest of the cast wasn't that great. Like, Adrian Brody was in that movie, I think. Like, Jack Black, who, of course, is known for his comedy movies and whatnot, he actually gave a really good, serious performance as the main character, as the uh, as the director within the, of the movie, within the movie. But, oh, this is just so bad. And again, Jack Black, another celebrity. You think Jack Black is going to give up his uh, private flights? You think he's going to give up, you know, all the gas guzzling he does to live his lavish lifestyle? Of course not. They continue to just preach to us from their ivory towers, from their gated communities, from their mansions, from their limousines, from their private helicopters and private jets. It's just so sickening. But why a dinosaur? Why a velociraptor? Nobody would know what a velociraptor even is if it wasn't for a Jurassic Park, first off. Second off, why? What in their minds compel them to do this that we're the united nations we're super serious take us seriously so here's a video of a dinosaur speaking to a crowd of humans i don't know i think it it's some there's this there's a um certain psychology about humans to where it's like they're fossilized whenever they're in their 20s and 30s and so uh what how old is jack black is he like 60 65 okay jack black is where's the wikipedia page he's 52 okay He's 52 years old. So, so on that, go it, you know, you got to think about it in his in his day and age. I guess Jurassic Park would have been the. I mean, that would have been the big thing when he was young, and that would have been the big thing for when most of these people, these elites in the UN, were young. So I guess they they got to try to. It's funny when you talk to people who are who are older, then they'll talk about movies and stuff out of pop culture that happened in the 80s and 90s, like it was just last week. Exactly. It's like, yeah, I know of that, but I can't really follow because that was like I was three at the time. So, but yeah, that's this is I think this is just why he picked Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, in defense of that, I will say I'd much rather prefer references to older movies that the young kids don't get than references to newer movies that like than that the younger kids think of rather than the original movies i remember there was one friend of mine who was like 20 something and i mentioned jurassic park and she said oh yeah i love chris pratt she was referring to the new movies yeah, she yeah. literally had no idea that the original jurassic park movies existed and that just absolutely broke my heart i will say though like this this un video almost makes me prefer the new jurassic park movies almost because those are pretty bad i'm not sure which is worse yet but they're, they're both terrible cgi just go watch the original jurassic park and save yourself some time all right so with that opening riff out of the way we just had to address this story again school boards school boards are the new battlegrounds of the culture war the dominant battlefield where everything the important battlefield where everything is happening and they're happening all over the country and there's this one story that is beyond infuriating. Minnesota school board member demands public commenters reveal address. This comes from the Mankato Area Public Schools District, where a member by the name of Jody Sapp opened the meeting saying, quote, I just want to remind everybody this is a business meeting of the school board. It is not a meeting that belongs to the public. Um, doesn't the school board belong to the public? Isn't that kind of the point? You know, it's paid for by taxpayer dollars. That's extremely redundant, but whatever. That just shows how entitled these bureaucrats and elitists are. 
Quote, each speaker is asked to state his or her name and address for the record. Failure to do so will result in an individual not being allowed to speak. And that led to this confrontation, among others, between the woman, Jody Sapp, and a father of a student in the district. I just want to remind everyone this is a business meeting of the school board. It is not a meeting that belongs to the public. Each speaker is asked to state his or her name and address for the record. Failure to do so will result in an individual not being allowed to speak. John, can you give us your name and address, please? Um, my name is John Wickland. I live in Mankato. Could I get your address, please, John? Um, I'd rather not, since you guys you have it already. Don't give your address. You can't speak. And I get so much uh, property damage and eggs and everything else from fun people and their friends. John, happening to be on you the need to give your address. All right, I live on Fifth Street. Excuse me? I live on Fifth Street. Listen how smug she is, by the way. I need your address, sir. That DMV worker style. Mm -hmm. I need your address, sir. Bureaucratic and, tyranny. And she made him repeat it. She heard what he said the first time. Fifth Street. Can you repeat that, sir, for the record? Can you repeat it a little louder for the Antifa members in the back? Yeah, no, we need we need the number and we need a clear description. House number? That, that was the audio being redacted. Thank you. He turned to like, look, he, you, you can see how nervous he is in the video. And again, we'll post a link. He like kind of pats the desk, like nervously he fiddles around. He turns and looks back uh, at somebody else sitting further back in the room. Uh, maybe his wife. I'm not sure. And then he gives the address. And of course, thankfully, the, the news agency, which shared this uh, Alpha News, which does some great work, by the way. Alpha News is a local outlet in Minnesota, which were among the very first to report the Ilhan Omar, the story of Ilhan Omar marrying her brother and committing uh, immigration fraud. So they're a great uh outlet great publication they redacted the audio for his privacy so good for them but this is i gotta say this much too when you look at the video this woman jody sap this old gray-haired disgusting woman take one look at her and tell me with a straight face oh yeah this woman definitely has kids in the district that she represents i guarantee you she does not i guarantee you she probably doesn't even have any kids the most she may have back at her house is a couple of cats maybe but she does not have any kids in this district and that is why and that's how it is with most of these school board members they don't have dogs in this fight relatively speaking they don't have any dogs in this fight they don't have kids in the district that will be subject to their policies allowing trannies to go into bathrooms and rape girls they don't have to subject them to hating their own race because they're white so she can do this. She can ask parents to dox themselves. And that's what they're doing. They are literally asking parents to dox themselves so Antifa doesn't have to do the work. They can just look at the meeting, the public record of the meeting, and say, oh, this guy lives over here. Time to go egg his house. Time to go uh, kill his dog. Time to go burn his house down, smash his car windows, and they will do it. And you know that this guy said he already had his, has, has had his house egged by fun people, as he puts it. You can tell he's not happy with this. He's not putting up with it, but... He wants to speak his mind. He wants to give his peace. And this is this is just another tactic they're going to use. I'm kind of surprised they haven't started doing this already in the, the Virginia counties that are the real hotbeds of all this stuff. Well, they tried to. Remember, they had there was that Facebook group of Virginia parents that was full of teachers and administrators that were actually doxing parents who were opposed to CRT. Wait, with school board members in the group? Yeah, yeah. There, there were oh, school yeah, board yeah. members. There were uh, – I don't know if there were actual school – any of the five school board members, but there were teachers. There were school administrators who were in the group, and they were doxing parents who – it was a closed Facebook group. And they were uh, revealing parents who were opposed to CRT being taught, of course, brandishing them as racist, brandishing them as fascist. And if, if you go back to the George Floyd riots – they were trying to initiate an anarcho-tyranny in America whereby if you were on the right and you were vocal on the right, 
you would have mobs show up to your house. You yep. would have kids harass your kids at school. You wouldn't be able to go to work. You wouldn't be able to go to any. You wouldn't be able to go to the ballpark anywhere without being harassed in public. So it would force everyone on the right to just keep their mouth shut and go along with the left's agenda. Exactly. Well, when these people started speaking out at school boards, these leftists who were or are partial to Antifa, they of course contacted the Biden administration, say, "Hey, we got to put a stop to this." So they implement that memorandum. Uh, Merrick Garland does. Well, now that that's being shut down, that's being exposed for what it is. Now you've got this school board in Minnesota. That's like, OK, well, we can't if we can't get the government to step in and do what we elected them to do, which is to shut down right wing dissent. We're going to have to re- revert to our anarcho tyranny that we implemented last summer and just let the you know, let the Antifa thugs attack anyone if force them to give their address and force them to be attacked if they stand up and speak out. It's a lose lose. I mean, you either have the feds knocking down your door or swarming your uh, school board meetings with helicopters or you have these Antifa thugs in the streets. Yeah knocking down your door in the middle of the night. And I just noticed, too, the uh, subtitles for the video by Alpha News noted um, that, again, they redacted it after he spoke his address, and they put subtitles at the bottom saying, board member Jody Sapp repeats his address into her microphone to ensure everybody knows where he lives. Because once again, just like she had to repeat, uh, ask a second time, can you repeat the name of your street? She repeated his address back so everybody could hear it. Because you can tell he was kind of quick about it, like, I live here. <clears throat> and she, of course, reads it out slowly. Again, like these DMV employee types, it's disgusting. And I think, again, in this circumstance, there's no other course of action, but we got to start doing to them what they're doing to us. This woman, Jody Sapp, needs to be doxxed. Imagine how she would feel if people knew what her address was. Imagine how she would feel if parents knew where her house was and started protesting at her house. She would probably change her tune very, very quickly, right? She'd probably go running to the police. And no. I guarantee you she probably supports defunding the police, but she would turn around and cry to the police if parents protested at well, her house. Well, in her situation, she wouldn't care because who's going to show up at her house? In Minnesota, Minneapolis, or wherever she's at in Minnesota. Mankato. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, it's no, not going to be Antifa. Yeah, but. nobody's going to show up to her house to protest. And if they do, they'll be met by an equal force of Antifa there to protect her house. So that's her why, personal bodyguards, basically. Yeah, she, she's not concerned about this. That's why in these, in these, uh, you know, these dark blue strongholds, especially places like Minneapolis and that mm-hmm. area, they don't really care if the shoe is on the other foot because they're they understand that they've made the rules and in their rules the government is illegitimate unless it supports their agenda and they can always command an army of thugs to come defend them if they need to whereas the right if the right tries to do that then you'll have multiple documentaries released about the right-wing militias terrorism you'll have the doj on uh, breathing down their neck you'll have the fbi on their tail you'll have every news every mainstream news source in the country running article after article Docs and the members and talking about this group of right wing thugs, the new KKK. So in that in that type of environment, you know, she doesn't really have it. You know, the shoe couldn't be on the other foot. So this is why in a situation like this, the right needs to understand that playing the limited government card just doesn't work in a situation like this. Like the only way to solve a problem like this is to get her eliminated from the school board, get her voted out. If that doesn't work, then you need to, you know, use the state government to come down and remove her from her position. And uh, speaking of the right's failure to understand the function of government, understand what government is for, like government, this idea that government just exists to protect our liberties. This is kind of the classical liberal understanding of government. Uh, And yeah, in the 1700s, that was true. When we created the United States of of America, the government was initiated to protect our liberties from other people. But who's going to protect our liberties from giant corporations and huge institutions which are not susceptible to the vote of the public exactly and these giant corporations and these major non-governmental institutions they didn't exist 100 years ago like they exist today they certainly didn't exist in 1776 
And so this is the problem with trying to straightjacket the government, that this is something that conservatives try to do. They, they want to still pretend like we're living in the 20th century when we can try to hark back to the, the age of classical liberalism. Because really, what just without going too deep in the weeds, this is kind of the way the parties and the in the you know the, the political ideologies switched in the 20th century. In the 19th century, you didn't have conservatives and liberals like we think of today. The liberals in the 19th century were what Europeans would think of liberals today, the classical liberals, like 18th century libertarians. Libertarians are basically trying to perfect or be a purist of uh, you know, the classical liberal tradition. Well, in the 20th century, with the era of FDR and big government, conservatives decided to try to conserve that classical liberal tradition. So they essentially became what 18th century, 19th century Americans would have considered liberals. So these conservatives like Russell Kirk and all, they took on the mm -hmm. classical liberal tradition and they sought to conserve that classical liberal tradition. In the 20th century, this made sense because you were trying to conserve the values that America was founded on the economic system. In the 21st century, in the age of big tech, that whole dichotomy kind of goes out the window. Because the Cold War dichotomy. The, well, it's not even a Cold War dichotomy. It's basically more of an 18th or 19th century dichotomy where you don't have the internet, you don't have technology. You know, the biggest corporation is Standard Oil, and even <laughs> that that doesn't compete with Facebook and other corporations. So and at least in this, in this particular situation, you've got corporations who are trying to act out the fantasies and the agenda of people who want to not not really the leftist, but the neoliberal establishment. So an example is this vaccine mandate that this alleged vaccine mandate that Biden is planning to roll out, which has not yet he hasn't rolled out yet. He's basically just issued a threat. And as a result, you've got major corporations around the country and even some small businesses who are forcing their employees to get vaccinated because in anticipation of this directive from the Biden administration, which isn't even constitutional. And this is another thing. Businesses who actually care about their employees, who aren't totalitarian, who don't support forcing everybody to get vaccinated just so you can weed out the Republicans in your midst. Those corporations, those companies, they're not forcing their employees to get vaccinated because they understand that even when this directive is handed down, it can be challenged in court. It could potentially be overturned. So they're not jumping on board to get in line behind this. Basically, what this threat is, is it provides cover to companies to force their employees to get vaccinated. So then they can say, well, we're just we're doing what we have to do because the government's going to fine us if we don't when the government hasn't even issued that directive yet. So across the state, governors, many Republican governors have been banning companies from forcing their employees to get vaccinated ahead of this potential directive that the Biden administration is going to implement. Uh, Greg Abbott, for instance, uh, he's the most high, high profile governor who's done this. And people are saying, well, federal law supersedes state law. With executive orders, it's kind of murky. But the thing is, there hasn't even been an executive order yet handed down by the Biden administration. It was more like it was a directive by OSHA, the off the Occupational Safety Hazard Administration. But they haven't to, even yeah. issued the directive yet. It's Not just yet. a threat. And the thing right. is, this state executive order from Texas, this has been implemented, which bans companies from forcing their employees to get vaccinated. So until there is an executive order from Biden, that executive order goes into effect. And then when Biden, if, if he ever does, the thing is, it may just be a bluff. He may not be actually intending to issue this executive order. It may just be a bluff to see how many companies are going to force their employees to get vaccinated. And in um, in South Dakota, for instance, we've got an example of Republicans refusing to use the power they've been entrusted to by their voters to protect them from institutions that want to do them harm. Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, has categorically refused mm -hmm. to issue any kind of directive to businesses in South Dakota that bans them from forcing their employees to get vaccinated. Exactly. She did the same thing with the transgender bill. She refused to use the power of the government to 
ban, you know, men from competing in women's sports, saying, oh, that's government overreach. We can't do that. When realistically, she just did that because Amazon and the Chamber of Commerce told her not to. And now she's doing the same thing. Again, she previously tweeted that, like, oh, if your employer has a vaccine mandate, America's the land of the free. You can find another employer. Like, yeah, great. Such a, <laughs> yeah. Such a tone deaf but, response. But again, to be expected from this her. is coming straight out of the classical liberal tradition, which, if, you know, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, it would make sense for conservatives to make that argument because they were trying to conserve classical liberalism. I mean, Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act because it was going to violate businesses, pers mm -hmm. the businesses' rights, business owners' rights to serve who they wanted to serve. This was the classical liberal tradition, the conservative position. With an issue like this, though, there is some nuance and some difference between that and between the Civil Rights Act, for instance, and something like this. And so, and I, well, I'll get to that in a second, but Noam sat down with for an interview with Breitbart News, and they brought this up and they brought up the issue of the transgenders in bathrooms and in sports. This is an article about, and this interview was, and this article was written by Matt Boyle. He writes, Noam's position on vaccine mandates is curious. She opposes the government mandating the vaccine like what President Biden is attempting to do for his still as of yet to be released Labor Department rule. But she does not oppose private companies independently deciding to mandate vaccines for their employees. Noam says she intends to sue Biden if and when he releases the rule. And this is what she's been doing. She's been grandstanding against this rule, been issuing all these statements, giving interviews to conservative outlets, saying, I'm going to stand up to the Biden administration if he issues this rule. This rule is unconstitutional. Looking and, good on Fox News. And all that what this stuff. does is it gives conservatives the impression, oh, good, she's a an attractive young middle-aged woman who's standing up to the Biden administration. She's a fighter. This is great. And they're not listening to what she's saying. They don't. And in fact, a lot of people don't even realize Biden hasn't even issued an executive order on this shit. He's simply said that he wants to do that in the future. And Noam is claiming to oppose a policy that ha doesn't even exist. This policy doesn't exist. But this is what she does in order to try to gain favor with the right and hide her true position, which is libertarian to its core, which is completely out of sync with what we need in this day and age. So she said uh, she told Boyle, quote, that's not his job. The Constitution is very clear that he has no authority over public health and safety of the people. He said that is left to the states and local governments. One of the things when I campaigned for governor, I committed to my people. I would fight against federal government intrusion. And I will sue him over that because that's not an authority the federal government has. We'll make sure they don't do what is left to the states and the power that is left to us. But on private companies independently deciding to mandate vaccines for employers, Noam takes a similar approach in that she believes the government also has no input there. She says, quote, we don't have a policy in South Dakota, and I'm not planning on bringing any kind of restriction on private businesses. The Constitution is pretty clear on that as well. Private property and private businesses need to have some rights as well respected by the government. I don't know what part of the Constitution she's talking about. I don't think private business is even mentioned in the Constitution. This is kind of like, you know, pro-choice people. They want to claim, well, the Constitution is very clear. We have a right to choose. I where? Sure it was not a concern of the founding fathers back then. <laughs> yeah, that was the least of their issue. worries right around that time. She says, I think, if, I think if we start doing that as conservatives, mandating to businesses, then what's the difference between what the government tried to do in the Hobby Lobby case or in the Baker case where they were mandating that businesses had to serve certain constituencies mandated and they had to provide contraception for their employees? We have to be careful as conservatives what we're doing to blur the lines on constitutional responsibilities and make sure we're standing on the principles and foundations that have kept this country free for hundreds of years. And she does bring up a good point, and this is something that a lot of people who demand that she issues this executive order need to answer. Okay, So if she issues an executive order banning companies from forcing their employees to get vaccinated, what's to stop a governor from issuing an executive order, order forcing Hobby Lobby to cover contraceptives? What's to stop a liberal governor or a liberal legislature or even Congress, as in the case of Obamacare, from forcing companies 
to provide contraceptives against their will or to serve homosexuals if they want to get married against their will or against their religious beliefs. Because it's not like that's happening already. It's, it's not like the left is already doing that or anything, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they've already done that. But <laughs> the thing that? is, if you're going to argue for consistency, then you do – this is something that the right does need to, uh, need to answer. OK, so how can you oppose this but then support the governor banning vaccine mandates by companies? Is there any consistency there? So here's the difference. If you're – let's say, for instance, you've got a company that has never served homosexuals. Who want to get married? They've never baked a cake for them. The government steps in and says you can't discriminate, or we're going to pass a law that says you can't do that, or you got to go out of business. You're forcing the company to do something that they've never done or they didn't want to do. In this case, the company is basically violating their contract with their employees. When their employees signed up to work for them, they did not agree to any kind of forced vaccination. If you let's say you joined, you became a teacher 10 years ago, you didn't know there was going to be a coronavirus and you didn't know that down the road after spending 10 years in this workforce, you know, saving up for retirement, that your employer was going to force you to either take a jab in the arm or be fired and give up your career. So this is, in essence, a violation of contract rights with their employees because it's something their employees never signed up for. And in the case, this is, this is a completely different instance than someone than the government stepping in and saying, "Okay, this business has to start serving these customers, or you have to start providing this particular service to your employees." Because the customers never enter into an, into an agreement with a certain business unless money is handed over, and even then, you know, the business can refuse to take their money. In the case of like you know the baker in Colorado who won't bake for a gay wedding. So that's the difference. You're you're basically forcing companies or allowing companies to violate the contracts of their employees because nowhere in their employees' contract does it say that they have to get vaccinated as a condition for employment. So this actually does tie into the limited government uh, contract. And again, you know, the classical in the classical liberal tradition, it's not just about limiting government. It's about limiting individuals and forcing individuals to abide by contract rights. That is one of the primary, that's the, the fundamental issue when it comes to libertarianism, to classical liberalism, is that everything is governed by contracts. And contracts are – you cannot violate contracts. If you have an employment contract with somebody, you cannot violate that contract. You can't say, OK, we're going to you know, fire you for uh, – without calls or anything like that. So that, that's, the, that's the take on that. So in other words, the Republicans could – the right in general could absolutely have the high ground and the moral standing on this issue if, like we talked about in the previous episode with the Newsweek op-ed, if they decided to become the party of workers, if they said, we're going to support you workers whose contracts are being violated by your employers. But again, that's, oh, that's socialism to talk about supporting the workers. So, of course, you know, like, again, Governor Christy Nome will never go for that angle. It's really a lazy analysis of their ideology. She said, quote, I would tell them to be careful about people who want her to sign an executive order banning business from doing this. She says, quote, I would tell them to be careful about what they ask the government public officials to do for them. I take my guidance from the Constitution. I swore an oath to that. It's very important to me that I adhere to that oath. The government that you make too big and too powerful and give leaders that kind of authority that the Constitution doesn't give them will be powerful enough to take away your freedom, too. And this is this is another issue that I fundamentally disagree with with conservatives. They want, to, they want to make this – especially libertarians. They want to make this argument, well, you don't want to give the government that kind of power because if you give the government that kind of power, then you know you're, the government's going to encroach in other areas. The government is not a non-human entity. The government is made up of human beings who are elected or appointed or hired. If you don't like what the government is doing, you can go to the ballot box. You can elect somebody else 
or you can demand that they hire somebody else. This is this is what the this is what the democratic system allows for. So this is this is a very ridiculous argument to claim that well you don't want to give the government too much power because then the other side could wield it against you. Well, just don't let the other side win elections. That, that's that's the simple answer to that. Just make sure they're beat at the ballot box. So asked hypothetically about whether if all of South Dakota's major hospital systems mandated the vaccine, what a nurse or a medical uh, with a medical or religious objection should do. And again, Nome isn't even saying, okay, well, we're just going to step in and say you can't fire an employee if they have a medical or religious objection. Like there's some people that medically they can't take the vaccine. Like their doctors recommend against it because of a medical condition they have. She's not she's not even saying that. She's basically saying employers can do whatever they want. They can they can do she's not putting any kind of regulation on. She's like, I'm a small government conservative. If companies want to want to fire people without calls on this issue, they can do whatever they want. So she was asked, what if every single hospital in South Dakota demanded that all their employees be vaccinated? Then that, you know, nurses, they don't have anywhere to go. She said, well, we've still got some independent health care places and jobs oh, and careers my. and positions in the state as well. That's a decision that really the employee will look at and evaluate their feelings and beliefs that in the and that vaccine. It is a challenge and it's a difficult time. You don't say. So oh, many times it's a challenge. Yeah, so many times it is not an easy decision for these employees. Many times their work has benefits that are very important to their family. They have retirement that they've been working towards taking care of their family or it's very close to home. It's such a challenge. That is one of the things we talk about consistently is how we can support employees like that. But also, what can we do to help them find the position that respects them and their decisions? Also, the freedom to pursue a job that helps them live the kind of life they want to. So is she suggesting welfare for these employees? She's talking and talking. She, she's saying we got to talk about helping yeah, them, but that's all she's doing is talking. I, yeah, is she going to offer welfare? Is this what big government welfare? I thought she was supposed to be a small government conservative. What? No, no, she's not offering any kind of welfare. She's basically just offering kind words and sympathy. Like, I'm so sorry that happened. It's, it, life is tough. It's, it's really tough now. It's tough times, really difficult, challenging times. But see, the thing is, she's a farmer. Like her family, they're they're farmers. If you're a farmer, you're basically a small business owner. You're not subject to vaccine mandates. So you don't have anywhere. You're basically not subject to anything. You own your income. You own your business. So, you know, if hospitals fire nurses for not getting vaccinated, you're a farmer. It's like, well, so sorry. That's that's terrible. Hate hate it for you. Sorry, bud. Sorry, lady. But th this is where conservatives are losing people left and right. This is why, like, we look at Biden's approval numbers and they're in the, they're in the dumps. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a slam dunk that somebody like Trump is going to get elected in 2024. It's not a slam dunk that Republicans are going to take back the House. It should be. I mean, technically, if the party in power is below 45 percent approval rating, it should be a slam dunk that your party. Yes, you will retake the House. You will retake the Senate. You will retake the White House. But it's especially not after the census and redistricting that's going on. Yeah, but it's not a slam dunk for Republicans just because you have stuff like this. A lot of Republicans are thinking, why should I vote for Republicans? They don't do anything for us. Mm -hmm. like they don't they do absolutely nothing for us in the same way with the transgender issue. Her argument against that is, well, I don't believe in big government. I don't want the government to do too much, but that's an issue where you've got government-funded schools. Mm -hmm. You're asking they're under your jurisdiction. Yeah, the legislature passed a law to ban this for government-funded schools in South Dakota, and and she vetoes the bill. Basically, pocket vetoes the bill because she claims, "Oh, I believe in small government." Their small government conservatism. Here, here's the way it works: they get in front of Fox News, they go on talk radio, they give interviews to Breitbart, and they talk up their conservative credentials and they bash Democrats. And they make it sound like they are on the front lines fighting against liberal tyranny that's coming to crush the small guy, the little guy, the conservatives, the people who are the, you know, the God-fearing, grassroots, middle America conservatives. But when they get elected, they don't do anything. 
Now, they don't implement, this is kind of what we're faced with in Virginia. If Glenn Youngkin gets elected, he's not going to do anything. He's basically just going to freeze in place everything that Ralph Northam did while he was governor. So we won't get any new liberal policies for the next four years, but he's not going to do anything to roll back the damage that has been done under Ralph Northam. And this is what these kind of conservatives, basically what I call Coke conservatives, this is what Coke conservatives do. They get in and basically they exist to help business. They exist to help big business. And they, you know, that's all they do. They just, they help big business and they sell that to people claiming that they're going to hold back the federal government, but they don't do anything to protect people from businesses. The government is simply a stakeholder. The government isn't this all-powerful, huge behemoth like it was during the 80s and the 90s. Nowadays, Amazon is that huge, powerful behemoth. Facebook is that big, powerful behemoth, as we're fixing to see in the main topic. So, you know, the government is just one of many stakeholders that has power in society. And, and you know, basically siding with all corporations and companies just because that's what we did in the 80s and 90s back when the big tech didn't exist. That's not going to cut it for voters. Republicans are going to get crushed in 2022 and 2024 unless they, you know, can. there's only so many older voters who are just will blindly guzzling, vote. Yeah, you're just guzzling Fox News and going to vote mm-hmm. R no matter who. So th- this is really, Chris, you know, people like her, they're a handicap on the right. Exactly. It has been said before that Republicans are simply just the party of no. They're, they're the, they very much tell people what they're against, not what they're for. But they need to start doing what Trump did and actually put forward solutions that they are for. Yeah, we're for building a wall. Yeah, we're for a proper infrastructure bill. Yeah, we are for these things rather than, just, oh, no, we're just against that. Oh, we're against that. Oh, we're against this one. We're against this one. Because, yeah, it's good to stand against what the left wants to do and what Biden is trying to do right now. But there's got to be more to it than that. You have to give people something to vote for, not just something to vote against. Because they're voting for people like Noam to be a bodyguard mm-hmm. for them against you know all the institutions that hate their guts and hate their country and their heritage. They're electing Republicans. Republicans will act as a bodyguard. If Republicans aren't going to act as a bodyguard, if they're just going to stand by and say, uh, limited government, limited government, let the corporations basically just massacre American values, then Eventually, people are going to figure out, you know, figure, you know, why vote for these people? Just, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. You vote for Republicans, you get Democrats. You vote for Democrats, you get Democrats. It's the same way either way. So, yeah, that, that's that's why we uh, – until the, until the conservative movement changes its philosophy on government, Republicans voters aren't going to get anything out of their elected officials. So for our main topic, once again, we got to talk about big tech, as we kind of hinted at in our previous segment. So Facebook, of all the big tech giants, we have discussed this previously uh, off air, Jacob, that arguably Facebook has a stronger grip on its branch of the internet sphere than any other big tech platform. Because, you know, Twitter is a microblogging platform, but there's several alternatives to them already, like Gab, Parler, Getter, and I guess Trump's new platform coming out soon. Uh, YouTube, you have competition from Rumble as a video sharing website, which is also doing uh, pretty well as a competitor. Facebook as a social networking website is the undisputed champion. There is nowhere else that people go to connect with old friends from high school, you know, which was the primary function. And still to this day is the main thing people use Facebook for. And of course, the fact that it is a left-wing organization run by lefties doesn't help that they have solidified that monopoly power just that much more. So initially, we should be happy to hear that Facebook is going through some serious trouble right now. But not once you dig a little deeper and find out who the person is who's causing them trouble. So a whistleblower, you guys have all heard of her by now, by the name of Frances Hogan, who worked at Facebook for a number of years, has blown the whistles. They, they call her a whistleblower. She is claiming 
all kinds of, uh, not necessarily misconduct at Facebook. She claims that it's negligence, and she's testified before Congress already. She gave a big, dramatic interview with uh, 60 Minutes on CBS, because that's where they all go these days. And she's basically claiming, when you dig just a little bit deeper, she is claiming, like, oh, Facebook puts their profits ahead of, you know, the well-being of its users, which, I mean, that's probably true. That's probably true for all social media companies. She is essentially claiming that Facebook is allowing misinformation, quote, misinformation and hate speech to spread. Because it's more profitable because every time, you know, Facebook ad sponsors, uh, you know, generate some money for a certain page, you know, obviously that the owners of that page get money, but also Facebook gets a share of that as well. It's the same with Google AdSense and YouTube and stuff like that. And she claims they were letting this content proliferate to get more money. And her argument basically boils down to, oh, we're not doing enough to crack down on these evil right-wingers and the hate speech of Trump and Breitbart and all these others. And she's becoming a superstar on the left and it's causing a massive headache for Facebook. And several more whistleblowers, uh, different from her, anonymous whistleblowers have come out with even more leaks about internal meetings and discussions and whatnot. And it's getting really, really ugly. And that's why Facebook just announced, Zuckerberg just announced the other day, they are rebranding and officially referring that they have a parent company, right? Because again, Facebook owns, they have the Messenger app, which is the instant messaging app uh, that run directly under Facebook. They own Instagram and they own another messaging app called WhatsApp. So this little like empire they've built up for themselves, they are announcing its new parent company name, you know, kind of like how Alphabet is the parent company of Google and YouTube and all those. They've announced it as Meta. <laughs> meta, the metaverse is what they are calling <laughs> themselves now, which, oh, that oh, that lack of self-awareness. Basically just rubbing in our faces. Yeah, we are going to be the new universe. It's like we are going to take over everything. It's especially perfect for Zuckerberg. You watch any of these videos of him, I swear. I don't, of course, I don't actually believe there are lizard people or aliens disguised as humans like in the movie They Live. But if there was one person in the entire world who could convince me that that is happening, it's Mark Zuckerberg. I saw a, a live stream he did one time, and that was in the one of the questions people asked him was, "Are you an alien?" <laughs> he got, he got, what did he say? He got pissed. He uh, got mad. He just said, "Okay, moving on to the next oh, question." Do you have any real questions to ask? Go ahead. It was, it was hilarious. He can't handle it. He knows, like the dude is like a, a malfunctioning Android simulation. He just <laughs> doesn't. Everything about his mannerisms, the, his facial movements, his voice, his inflections, none like of a it robot. is. And none of it's real. And I remember, I remember when the social network came out, the movie based on Zuckerberg and how he basically stole Facebook from everybody else around him. And uh was Jesse Eisenberg played him. And the joke at the time, this is way back in 2010, Facebook was becoming really big. It was it was not the powerhouse it is now, but it was it was still just a fun little social networking website. And the meme going around was like, Oh man, this is so unfair to Zuckerberg. They made Zuckerberg look like such a jerk in that movie. How could they do that? And now here we are, ten years later, and we realize. No, you know what? The Zuckerberg in that movie was actually more likable and more charismatic than the real Zuckerberg. Um, but so, yeah, this woman, Frances Hogan, is causing a lot of headaches for Zuckerberg. And naturally, people are some on the right are latching on to this as, yeah, yeah, this is the end of Facebook. Yeah, they're clapping for her. And yeah, she's a brave whistleblower. But if you dig just a little deeper, not just beyond what she's saying about how she, she hates conservatives, but you look at the inner workings, the behind the scenes work about the behind-the-scenes aspect of her rise to prominence as this whistleblower, you find out some dirty, dark little secrets. So, Jacob, what do we know about Frances Hogan and the operation that is behind her? So, I didn't watch the 60 Minutes interview when it came out, or I haven't watched. I haven't watched it since. I just read about it, read some, you know, read the um, news articles that came out about what was said in it. But when it came out, it's one of those things where they do the same thing over and over and over again. Eventually, it's like, okay, yeah, here they go again. Like, yeah, I know, okay, I know what this is. This is the same thing they tried last year and the year before. And when I say they, I mean, you know, the the government, the intelligence community. I mean, the NGOs, the, deep state. the billionaire. Yeah, well, yeah, the deep state. 
the billionaires who support a you know an interconnected world who want who support the multinational corporations having more power and accumulate more power over over nationalities who want to break down nationalism like when I say they I just mean them I don't mean some kind of dark conspiratorial forces I mean people who are out and open about their neoliberalism and so when this when the, when she gave this interview it was like okay I, I know what this is I know what they're wanting to do and I think most people on the right did as well so most people on the right didn't tune in. And they kind of like, okay, it's the same thing over again. They just want to use government to control big tech. Like they don't want to actually regulate big tech to provide for more open dialogue for people. They just want to take it over. They just want to use big tech as an arm of the Democratic Party and eventually the Republican Party. If they can ever kick the Trumpers out of the Republican Party and completely turn that into a neoconservative bastion like it was under George W. Bush. But this is – this is what this is, and it was very obvious that this is what it was. So I didn't really pay any attention to it. I didn't read much about it. It's like, okay, whatever. But it just keeps going on and on and on, and they keep treating this woman as if she's some kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I, they, they're treating her as a hero like all the major neolib outlets in the, in the mainstream press. They, they just keep running puff piece after puff piece about her. It's just like all the other, like the deep state whistleblowers who came out under Trump, like, you know, Alexander Vindman well, yeah, or, or Miles Taylor. This is basically just a repeat of two years ago. This is basically the impeachment of 2019 all over again. They bring out a bunch of really articulate, well-groomed spokespeople who have PR firms and lawyers behind them worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's, you know, very polished, made for TV. It's basically just in entertainment for liberals. And people on the right, of course, they don't have the firepower to fight back against this. But on the grassroots level, most people understand what it is. It's basically a coup against the American people, not necessarily against Trump. But even now, it's basically a coup against the American the people. The 63 million and then the 74 million who voted for him in favor of, quote, the interagency consensus, which is what they called it under testimony. And in this case, it's basically a coup against Facebook users because they don't want – they want to take over the censorship of Facebook. So – I finally decided to look into it, see what exactly this lady is about. So just a brief recap of the timeline, because I'm sure a lot of people, they just they weren't following the stuff like I was just because, it's the, you know, it's the same old stuff again. But so Francis Hogan is, for all intents and purposes, just a typical Democrat normie. She's just your typical millennial Democrat normie who toured Europe in her mid 20s, late 20s, who biked across Europe who you know, had the intercontinental international experience. She worked for Google for like six or seven years. She worked for, I think she worked for Pinterest. She just bounced around from major tech companies to, uh, you know, I'm not going to go through her full CV, but she has a very impressive techie resume. So last year she got hired, last fall she got hired by Facebook to work as a project manager for their threat intelligence unit. This threat intelligence unit, it was a unit made up to keep an eye on foreign actors on Facebook to make sure you didn't have Chinese or Russians. Mostly, they mostly focus on on West Asia and South Southeast Asia to focus, make sure you don't have any foreign actors who are trying to use Facebook and manipulate Facebook for you know nefarious ends, which typically mean ends that that don't coincide with the interests of the U.S. State Department. This threat intelligence unit with Facebook it hired a bunch of former intelligence officers. In fact, one there was one journalist who uh, found a job application for this unit about the same time that Hogan came forward with her as, and identified herself as the whistleblower to the Wall Street Journal that required five-plus years' experience in an intelligence department. So this is a unit that Facebook used made up of former intelligence officers to assess threats, foreign threats on Facebook. So she worked for them last fall. Then she was moved over to a different unit in Facebook that looked out for uh, basically toxicity on, on you know, like uh, political toxicity. And that's where she pulled these emails and these files from that she presented to the Wall Street Journal. 
in December of 2020, she emailed someone in the Wall Street Journal about this stuff. And we're going to come back to this in a minute. She worked with Facebook until March. She quit and she quit in March. Wall Street Journal began a series of nine articles on Facebook on this on these leaks in September. Yeah, whenever I saw that, I, I, that that's like insanity. I had heard different art. I had heard, I'd heard you know, read different articles and heard different people talk about the, what the Wall Street Journal was doing. I didn't know it was nine articles. And the thing is, even after the nine article series concluded, if you look at it, they continued. They kept writing. Like they've got like fourteen articles on this now. I'm willing to bet that that's roughly fourteen more articles than the Wall Street Journal ever wrote about the Hunter Biden laptop story back when it, in 2020. Exactly. They were actually pitched that story. Story, and they took their sweet time about running it, so they turned it over to the New York Post and let the New York Post beat them to it because they knew – I mean the Wall Street Journal, they know that big tech, the power they have and their agenda, they knew that the big tech was going to shut them down. It would spike their story. They didn't want to go through that, so that's I'm sure that's why they dragged, they dragged their feet. But in this instance, so the Wall Street Journal puts out nine articles. You know how they do. They'll release one. Next day, they release another one. And it's a slow trickle-out effect to uh, provoke maximum damage to the victim, and in this case, the victim is Facebook. So in the ninth article, this is on October 3rd. This is when the ninth article came out. This is when Hogan goes on 60 Minutes. She goes on 60 Minutes, which airs at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. At 7.36 p.m. Eastern, the Wall Street Journal releases their ninth article with her face on the cover, and they reveal who their source was for all these articles. So six minutes after her interview starts with 60 Minutes, then the Wall Street Journal releases the article telling who their source is. And this was the final article in that series. After she, as soon as she, Shortly after she went on the 60 Minutes interview, she created a new website, a very nice uh, professional-looking website, and a new Twitter account. She had locked her previous Twitter account, eventually deleted it. She immediately gets verified. It's very interesting. As that quickly. She, she, huh. she creates a Twitter account and immediately gets verified. In the interview, she was asked when she decided to come forward, and she said sometime in 2021. Now, what's interesting is the Wall Street Journal article that was that was, went up with a byline six minutes after that interview started claimed that she emailed them in December of 2020, that she had sent an email, uh, you know, a crypt, uh, basically a uh, cryptic email about some stuff that she had on Facebook in December, early December of 2020. And in the interview, at the same time as this article is going up, she's claiming that she first decided to start doing this sometime in 2021. Now, what's interesting, of course, we're not going to go through it. Obviously, she, obviously, she testifies before Congress. She goes to Britain and testifies before their parliament. She goes and does a tour of Europe that's funded, as we're going to see, by somebody else. And she goes and you know talks about this in Europe, trying to get – because right now Britain is, is debating a bill in parliament that would provide criminal liability to tech companies that allow anything on their platform that goes against British law. So if you have uh, quote unquote hate speech online and the company that allows that hate speech to go up online, they could be criminally liable. So where does she come from? So she has donated to Act Blue. She's donated a bunch of money to the Democratic Party. So she's very obviously Democrat, very open about that. She's got a bunch of Obama operatives, a bunch of DNC operatives who are running her, you know, her law, her law team, who are running her communications arm, her PR firm, uh, the PR firm that's backing her. But there's one individual in particular that is particularly invested in this whole story and Francis Hogan in particular. This guy's name, as you may have heard, is Pierre Omidyar. Pierre Omidyar is the founder of eBay. And Politico did a report on him a few days after she came forward, pointing out his ties to Francis Hogan. So his global philanthropic organization, Luminate, it's a grant-making organization, kind of like the Open Society Foundation under George Soros. This this organization, of course, they give grants to different different foundations and different media outlets around the world that support Omidyar's political views. 
This organization is handling Hogan's press and government relations in Europe for free. And its foundation last year gave $150,000 to Whistleblower Aid, the outfit that is taking care of her legal defense. Whistleblower Aid was created for the explicit purpose of defending people who are whistleblowers, essentially whistleblowers who have the backing of the deep state, of whistleblowers who aren't necessarily – like not Edward – like they are very openly opposed to Edward Snowden and um, who's the, Julian Assange. Julian Assange. Like the founders are very, very open on Twitter in, you know, in public statements against those two. They only support basically uh, whistleblowers who are in line with the government's priorities. So for people who may think that, okay, this is – and this is the this is what the media is trying to portray, that this is a David going against a Goliath. Like they want to try to portray this as this this poor little lady. She's risking everything. In fact, this is what they say, that she's risking everything, putting everything on the line, her whole career on the line, potentially you know put even putting her life on the line. It is almost subtly – you know it, it suggested that she, her life could be in danger, her, her safety could be endangered by Facebook because it's this huge, powerful mega corporation that she's going against. She's basically a David taking on Goliath. But when she's backed by Pierre Omidyar, who is himself a multi-billionaire, the founder of eBay, then it you kind of put it into – you can find the perspective here. It's basically a, a Goliath fighting against a Goliath, and Goliath 1 is using a David to fight against Goliath 2. And this is basically a billionaire against a billionaire. You got Omidyar going against Zuckerberg, and he's using her to attack Zuckerberg. Omidyar's – and this is from Politico – this shows once again that big money exists on all sides of the tech debate in Washington, a fight in which former Silicon Valley insiders have become some of the industry's most devoted foes. Omidyar's global philanthropic organization, Luminate, is handling Hogan's press and government relations in Europe, and his foundation last year gave $150,000 to Whistleblower Aid, a nonpro the nonprofit organization that is providing Hogan's legal representation and advice. And Hogan's top PR representative for the U.S., former Obama spokesperson Bill Burton, runs public affairs for the nonprofit Center for Humane Technology, an advocacy organization that receives funding from Omidyar. The center is a client of Burton's firm. Hogan appeared on a Center for Humane Technology podcast earlier this month. So Hogan, so uh, Omidyar funds this 501c3 that has a podcast, and then he funds Hogan, who then goes on the podcast. See how this works? I mean, this is basically this is basically the way the the PR world works in American media. It's totally natural. It's grassroots in Oh, absolutely. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, just for grassroots David going against a Goliath. Another prominent tech world figure in Hogan's camp, Harvard constitutional law professor and former Democratic presidential candidate Larry Lessig, who told Politico early Thursday that he has provided limited pro bono legal and communications work for Ho for Hogan. Lessig also said that he retained Burton's firm to provide communication advice and support said, quote, I am not her main lawyer. The work is uh, also pro bono to Francis, has been done by a very impressive team organized through whistleblower aid, end quote. But one of Omidyar's organizations, his advocacy and investment group, Omidyar Network, responded to requests for comment by pointing to a newly published blog post titled, In Support of Tech Whistleblowers Who Are Holding Tech Account, Who Are Holding Tech to Account. Quote, we are grateful to the brave people who have called out big tech for its bad behavior. They are an important part of creating systemic checks and balances for big tech. Because of them, policymakers are taking notice and taking action to rein in their excessive power and restore trust and balance in digital markets, end quote. So, of course, they want to make themselves sound altruistic. They want to make it sound like they're doing this for the public interest and public good. They have no personal interest, no ideological interest whatsoever. They're simply wanting to make sure there are checks and balances on big tech, which most people would agree with. Most conservatives and liberals would agree with this. And it's very interesting that her leaks went to the Wall Street Journal. They didn't go to a leftist outlet. They didn't go to the New York Times. 
if they had gone to the New York Times or some leftist center outlet, then conservatives could say, oh, look, she's just a Democratic operative. She's got Bill Burton on her side. She's supported by Omid Yar. She's got all these leftists in her camp. And, of course, she leaks it to CNN or leaks it to the New York Times. But, no, by leaking it to the Wall Street Journal, she's able to get conservative and Republican eyes in front of her articles, in front of her leaks. And so by this, it gives legitimacy to her as a nonpartisan actor. One person – now, this is this is this is interesting – one person familiar with Luminate Strategy said Omidyar's network became involved only after Hogan went public in early October. Mm, I, I highly I, doubt I, that. I guess. So, but here's what's interesting. Now, that's hard to believe in itself. But then they, they give a quote from this person. Now, listen to what this person says. Listen to the wording. Quote, I don't want to give the impression that Pierre was involved for months in secretly funding this behind the scenes. Well, wait a minute. Why are you assuming that we would have that impression? No one said that. You, yeah. you said that. Exactly. It's like you're, you know, no, hey, nobody brought that up. It's kind of like if you're investigating a crime and uh, the guy says, I didn't see any blonde. Well, wait a minute. Who said anything about a blonde? I, I swear I, I didn't strangle her. Who said she died by strangulation? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that thought, I thought, thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. But he goes on. He keeps sticking that foot, he or she, whoever it is, keeps sticking that foot deeper in their mouth. Quote, it is the case that he funded lots of work around big tech and democracy, lots of different organizations for several years. And when the Hogan disclosures became public, we leaned, we leaned in and said, how can we help? Notice the wording. It is the case that he funded lots of work around big tech and democracy. That's another tell is like when they're trying to cover up for like a greater crime. It's like, okay, okay officer, I'm, I may have, I may have used a fake $20 bill, but I definitely don't have any fentanyl on me. Like, you know, it's that, it's, but also I remember watching a movie years ago. This is like 20, 30 years ago about this black soldier in world war II who, when he came back to the States, he just, he hated white people. He couldn't stand to be around white people. And I can't remember the actor, but he was a world war. He's a white world war II vet. And he went and he tried to be his friend and everything. And he, he served with him in World War II. And the reason why this black guy hated white people it was because he believed that his unit of black soldiers had been massacred by white Americans during World War II. Because he showed up and there were a bunch of dead Germans. And the soldier there who was dressed in American uniform said, looked at him and said, you did all this? And he said, yeah, yeah, we're, we, did, we killed all these people. And then he turned his gun on them and they mowed down the black unit. And he was the only survivor. So because of that, he felt like white people had purposely tried to kill him. This white soldier, this white vet, went back and looked up the, the records of that unit and what was going on in that area. He came back and he said, oh, wait a minute, you said that this soldier said you did all this? He said, you didn't say you shot these people or you killed these people. He asked, you did all this? And he said, no American would use that terminology. That isn't something that a native-speaking English person, native-English-speaking native American would use. He said those soldiers were Germans who had taken the uniforms off of dead American soldiers. Your unit wasn't killed by Americans, it was killed by Germans. But by listening to the terminology, if you hear people, even if they have an American accent, even if they're right and you can't hear their accent, if they, when they use words that would not be used in normal parlance like this, mm -hmm. it is the case that he founded lots of work around big tech and democracy. I know of a couple of languages where that would make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody starts a sentence out by saying it is the case that. Yeah, that's, that's just not the way you talk if you're a native English speaker. That's like legal talk. It is legal talk, exactly. And why would I bring this out? Why is it important that this person is probably not an American? Well, because the next thing he says, he says that Omid Yar has done lots, has funded big tech. He has done lots of work, funded lots of work around big tech and democracy, lots of different organizations for several years, big tech and democracy. You don't fund democracy. Democracy is just something that exists, like it's a form of government. People vote, they elect candidates, that's democracy. You I mean, unless, fund, you're, unless you're fortifying democracy, unless like you're fortifying they did in 2020, democracy. according to Time magazine. Or like Soros does in other countries. 
he funds he funds all these democracy organizations, which are essentially just political arms to try to overthrow governments or to keep favorable regimes in place. So what exactly is Omidyar's agenda? Okay, so he's he's been a liberal for I mean he comes out of Silicon Valley. Obviously, like most leftists, he's very liberal. He's into new age stuff. He's he just he basically tries to take 1960s hippieism and bring it into the 21st century and marry it with big tech, which is essentially what most of Silicon Valley has done. It's a bunch of neo-hippies and kids of hippies, or red diaper babies, as a lot of people like to refer to them as, who made it big in tech, and now they want to change the world and basically export hippieism throughout the world with their billions of dollars. In 2009, he donated $30 million to the Clinton Global Initiative. He founded The Intercept. If, uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't know what that is. It's kind of a small media outlet, but it, was, it became famous because that's uh, who holds the Snowden files. Uh, Glenn Greenwald was an editor there for a while. He also funds Crystal's Alliance, Bill Crystal's Alliance for Secure and Democracy and the Bulwark's 501c4. He donated $1.6 million to Bill Crystal's Defending Democracy Together group, which spent $11.6 million on attack ads against Trump. So Omid Yar single-handedly funded more than a tenth of Bill Crystal's Never Trump operation. So this guy is a hardcore liberal. He supports Never Trumpism. But so what, what does he see in Never Trumpism or neoconservatism that would cause him to support somebody like Bill Crystal? A lot of people will say a lot of this is where a lot of Republicans get caught up and they're like, OK, well, he hates Trump. So he's just supporting any Republican that opposes Trump. They see everything in partisan lines. But Bill Crystal, his foreign policy actually aligns neatly. With somebody like Omen Yard. Yeah, people got to remember the crystals and neoconservatives are essentially Wilsonian liberals. When it comes to foreign policy, there really isn't any daylight between them and Harry Truman, between them and Woodrow Wilson. They came out of the Democratic Party. So it makes sense that Omid Yard and Bill Crystal would see eye to eye on foreign policy, as we're going to see here in a second. Okay, remember that odd wording that we I brought out in Politico? Yeah. So it turns out that Omid Yard does the same thing that Soros does. He just keeps a quieter profile about it. Luminate, his organization Luminate, is just one of several grant-making foundations he has. The Omid Yard Network is another one. And it's one of the four biggest donors to this Ukrainian TV station called Hromatske. Now, Hromatske was created in 20, at the end of 2013, uh, right before the, Ma the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, which overthrew their uh, Russian-friendly fr president and installed a uh, U.S. State Department friendly guy, uh, Poroshenko, who was, of course, big. He was a big backer of the Clintons. And basically, his administration and the Obama administration were in bed with one another. This TV station was founded expressly denouncing the pro-Russia side in Ukraine and just going hardcore in favor of the pro-State Department side of the Ukraine. So it wouldn't surprise me one bit if this guy who is familiar with the Luminate Network, who gave this quote to Politico, has a Ukrainian last name. I don't know this for sure. His, he remains anonymous in Politico, but I could just see Omidyar and his people cringing when they read that quote, if they, if you know what I mean, if they can see that, okay, this guy needs to just keep his mouth shut, doesn't need to comment on stuff like this. But it would not surprise me if the guy probably has a Ukrainian last name. So Forbes did a piece on this. This was back in 2015. They did a piece on Omidyar's funding. This is by Kenneth Raposa. He writes, look who funds Ukraine's anti-Putin internet TV. It writes, the best way to raise funds for a media project in Ukraine, go full bore anti-Russia to easily woo North American and European governments to give you money. Kiev-based Hromatsky.tv is the symbol of the info wars between Moscow and the Western world, a war that the West claims it is losing to the big guns in Moscow. So worried are Europeans, Canadians, and Americans that the Russians are beating them at their own game, the sexy world of news and entertainment, that they're funding the company. According to their financial report for the year ending 2015, they have nearly a dozen foreign backwards, backers. Some long-term, some more fly-by-night. 
Who are they? They are the Canada International Development Agency, the Embassy of the Netherlands in Ukraine, another Canadian charity called the Ukrainian World Foundation, independent D.C.-based Pact World, the U.S. Embassy of Ukraine's Media Development Fund. eBay founder Pierre Omidyar's fund is one of the biggest four donors, as well as some others. And he goes on, like the, the Thomas Foundation, the German Embassy in Ukraine, the European Commission's Ukrainian Delegation Office. So it's very clearly a foreign operation. Many of the donations are harmless funds from organizations like Pact and Thompson that train young reporters, but donations from the European Commission are particularly interesting reveal given the anti-Russian government news flowing out of Romotsky. The site was created by 43-year-old Ukrainian journalist Roman Skripin during the heat of the Euromaidan movement in 2013. Within a year, the site became one of the go-to spots for news from activist point of view, all of whom were pro-Europe. Not unlike the rest of Ukraine, Skripin allegedly stole around $250,000 from the online media company he created. The channel is suing their ex-CEO, which he eventually got off. He was found not guilty, so he continues to lead the company to this day. Even Hillary Clinton has chimed in, saying the Russians were coming to a Baltic country near you. Hermatsky follows that narrative and others regularly seen in Russia-Ukraine headlines out of the U.S. and Europe. In other words, claim that Russia is trying to invade the Baltics. Robotsky.tv is merely an example. American consumers of news media would be disgusted if they learned that the Huffington Post received grants from Russian think tanks. It may not lead to outright editorial input in daily operations, but journalists and newsrooms are notorious self-censors. And increasingly under financial strain, who will bite the hand that feeds it? So, and he writes, judging by a small sampling of Hermosky's daily coverage, not them. In other words, they're not going to bite the hand, the hand that feeds them. This is something that Glenn Greenwald pointed out on his blog recently about Omidyar. So he argued that when Omidyar owned, of course, he owned The Intercept when Glenn Greenwald was there. And he said that Omidyar never tried to interfere with the editorial content, just as he agreed when he hired Greenwald. But he argues that the reason why The Intercept eventually ended up taking The New York Times neoliberal point of view on Russiagate and all this other stuff was because even though Omidyar wasn't actively engaged and overseeing the operations of The Intercept, all of their salaries came out of his pocket. And this is the argument that this author in Forbes is saying about Romanske. Just because Omidyar doesn't own Hromatsky, just because the embassy, the U.S. embassy doesn't own it, doesn't mean that they're not going to, you know, match their editorial content for what the State Department, what people like uh, like Omidyar want to see, because they understand that they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. This is true with the Washington Post, the Bezos-funded Washington Post. This is true across the board with any news outlet that's funded by a single billionaire or even a group of billionaires or a group of government actors who all have the same agenda. In this case, is creating a government in Ukraine that is favorable to the West and opposed to Russia. But the funding that he gave to Hromatsky is just a drop in the bucket. For instance, in 2014, this is a news release that the Omidyar Network released in December 2014 saying Omidyar Network supports 15 transparency and accountability organizations with grants totaling $9.7 million. This is 15 different organizations that the Omidyar Network funded to the tune of $9.7 million. Ramatske TV only received $500,000. So the rest of this money is going to all these other organizations throughout the world. And notice the wording. These are transparency and accountability organizations. And this is the same thing that Soros does. He'll give money through his Open Society Foundation to all these different nonprofits and, and NGOs around the world in these other countries with words like accountability, democracy, you know, anti-corruption, all this other stuff that any normal person would support. So they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You want to help uh, this country with their democracy efforts? I'll give to that. I support democracy. But what they're not thinking is this is actually what, what he means is, you know, subversive organizations that are going to overthrow governments not favorable to his open society worldview. Now, listen to the wording that they use when they're describing why they're given this, uh, why they're given this aid money. 
says, quote, from increasing the flows of open data about government services to making fiscal governance data more transparent and from supporting civic technology tools that aggregate and disseminate information about public services to increase the capacity and for professionalism of independent investigative media, Omidyar Network supports innovative organizations that bridge the gaps among government, public services, and citizens who seek to engage on matters importance of importance to them and to hold their leaders to account. Who would be opposed to that? That sounds wonderful. And it's the same way with Hogan. You, they, they have an agenda, which is the political side of things, but then they throw in all this other stuff that anybody would support. So, for instance, the Instagram thing about girls feeling bad about their bodies on Instagram, about that leading to suicide, about them being depressed. That's a legitimate issue that anyone can be concerned about. And so people are like, OK, yeah, I support that. Or with the AI uh, which it, which basically creates groups and uh, and funds those groups in uh, tracks. For instance, there was an anti-Jewish group of uh, people on Facebook that AI that, fa that Facebook's AI directed um, advertisers funds to go toward. They didn't do that on purpose. It's just the way AI is formulated. So this is what they use. These are things that anybody can oppose, and they use this stuff, but then they throw in the poison pill with misinformation. And they say, oh, we also need to crack down on misinformation, which is really, that is the crux of what they're going for. Then they throw in all this other stuff like government accountability and all, just like these NGOs in Ukraine and other countries. They throw in this stuff that any normal, reasonable person would support, and then underneath is funding from Matsuki TV and other things that are trying to overthrow the, the governments that are elected by the people in those countries. But here's the thing with Omidyar. Like Soros, he has taken it upon himself to continue the Cold War with his fortune by waging a proxy war on non-aligned countries that aren't anti-Russia. And this is, it's the same thing with Soros. Soros. This is what Soros' involvement in Eastern Europe is about. It's about using his wealth to create governments that support the neoliberal internationalist establishment that he supports. So that way you have country after country getting in line with what is essentially a neo-capitalist system that they've created, just like we were trying to get countries to get in line with our capitalist system during the Cold War. So instead of the CIA running operations like this, it's Pierre Omidyar and George Soros. The thing with Facebook is it's kind of a rogue actor because Mark Zuckerberg isn't necessarily interested in any of this. He's never shown any proclivity to interfere in the affairs of foreign nations until he's pressed to do so by people like Omidyar, by Congress. And that's what this is. They, This lady was very obviously groomed to be a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. So she could go before Congress and go before the British Parliament, go before the European uh, the European Parliament or wherever else she's in, in Brussels, and, and I think she went, went to Paris and Madrid. She's like the new Greta Thunberg at this point, Like the basically. new Greta Thunberg. She's basically – she exists to drum up political pressure on Facebook, so Facebook will be forced to step into line with this kind of democracy-building exercise that people like Omidyar and Soros are doing abroad in our on state a, On an international stage because obviously Zuckerberg has no qualms about interfering in our government and interfering in American politics and donating hundreds of millions to get out the vote efforts in deep blue states and deep blue cities, but he is not – as far as they see it, he's not seeing the bigger picture with the broader global agenda. Exactly. And this is what Hogan said when she wouldn't testify before Congress. She brought up the, the civil war that's going on in Ethiopia. She brought up what was going on in Myanmar a couple of years ago, talking about it's just terrible what Facebook – and basically what she's just saying is it's terrible that we allow governments that we don't agree with to use Facebook to communicate with each other. It's terrible that we allow activists that we don't agree with to promote agendas that we disagree with. And what they want is they want a governmental regulatory agency. That will oversee Facebook and provide a veto so that way they can censor because they like the fact that Facebook is censoring some. They agree with some of what Facebook is censoring. But the thing is, Facebook is separate from them and their agenda and separate from government. They, they probably agree with 60 to 80 percent of Facebook censorship, but the other 20 to 40 percent still allows people on the right, people who are not 
in favor of this neoliberal internationalist order that they're trying to create. It still allows people like that to communicate and organize, and that's what they want to shut down. It's not just about it's not just about Republicans. This is the thing a lot of Republicans think they think, oh, well, they just want to shut down Republicans. Not necessarily. I mean, Omidyar funds Bill Crystal. He's not necessarily anti-Republican. Yeah, he's a Democrat. He, he's, he a, he's a quote unquote Republican, like a CNN Republican. Well, he's he's a Democrat, but he didn't go full full bat you know what crazy until trump became president then mm-hmm. he just went off the deep end and this is the way this is the way they all these tech guys did they went off the deep end when trump became president because unlike george w bush he was actually he actually provided a challenge to the bipartisan internationalist agenda of the post-world war ii and post especially post-cold war order that they want to create internationally exactly that is all the time we have left for this episode of the right take thank you guys so much for tuning in Be sure to catch next week's episode, guys. Episode number 44 is going to be a special episode because, of course, next week we have the handful of elections that are happening this year, the gubernatorial races in Virginia and New Jersey. But we will also primarily be focusing, but we will primarily be focusing on, of course, the one year anniversary of the 2020 election and a special episode that will not go on YouTube. Take note of this, guys, because, of course, YouTube doesn't allow us to talk about this stuff. We will be doing a deep dive, in-depth, closer look and analysis at all of the proof, the various irregularities and the hard proof of voter fraud that took place in the 2020 presidential election and several other elections that same year. So don't miss next week's episode, guys. Until then, be sure to follow all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media platforms and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you guys are ever feeling generous enough, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.